You can be seated. Father, thank you again for the morning. God, thank you for your word that we were about to uh, engage with. Lord, I pray that we would meet you this morning through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would uh, open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 1 through 7. Um, and while you're turning there, I would uh, love to just mention and encourage you to uh, connect with Colton. He's uh, with us just for a couple more weeks, and then um, maybe most of you probably know this, but he's moving on after December 26th. He'll be moving up to Minneapolis. Um, <clears throat> and so it's, uh, it would be easy for us to lose sight of that just in the reality that it's the Christmas season and we're kind of moving through a special time of the year for the church. And, um, but I don't want to forget that Colton's a part of our ministry and uh, he's been a really important part. And so I would love for you guys to connect with him uh, in these next couple of weeks. Um, the other thing that I wanted to share with you this morning is, I know you guys already heard it, but we have two Christmas Eve services on Friday. Uh, one that's here at 5 o'clock and then one that will be up in Centerville at 7 o'clock. And so I would love for you to um, consider coming to one of those. Um, and then also um, we have invites at the back counter at the welcome counter. If you'd like to invite your friends, that would be a good service to invite your friends to. Um, so we've been in a Christmas series here at Hillside um, and we're getting close to the day, uh, December 25th, where we celebrate the birth of Christ and what that means for us. But I uh, have just been thinking so much this week that it's an amazing story. It's an amazing story of God coming down to us. Um, it's an amazing story of his goodness. It's really an amazing story of condescension, if you think about it, leaving glory and being on earth. Um, and sometimes we consider like it a privilege to live where we live, right? But leaving the glory of heaven to come to earth, that doesn't, that's not the privilege that maybe we would think it is. Um, it, so it's an amazing story. And really, ultimately, I would say it's the greatest story that's ever been told. And the reason that uh, we study the scriptures, oftentimes we look for them to figure out what we should do with life or what God's calling us to. But really, the scriptures are the story of God and his goodness. And the story of this passage this morning that we're going to study, it really gives us a window into the heart of God and who God is. Um, and so I'm going to start off this morning just by reading verses 1 through 7 of Luke chapter 2 to us, um, and then we'll go uh, into that study. Uh, Luke chapter 2 verse 1 says this, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration of Quirinius uh, when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Oh, I just want to look at three different things that I see in this passage here this morning. And then at the end, I will try and draw application for us to our own lives. But the first thing that I want you to notice this morning is the timing of Christ's birth. Verses one through three. I'm going to read them for you again. It says, in those days... 
a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. So I think it's really important here to notice that Luke is trying to tell us something. Luke is extremely concerned that we know exactly what had happened and when it happened. To Luke, the factuality and the history of this moment is not an insignificant thing. And we could very quickly skip over this passage of Scripture or these first few verses because, okay, let's get to the story. But often we will hear things that Christians say, and maybe um, you've said something like this before, but Christians will often say that it doesn't really matter whether the gospel writers got all of the facts right. It is the spirit of the story that counts. And I want to push back on that just a little bit this morning and say here that that mode of biblical interpretation or that way of thinking is completely alien to the thought world of the Bible. Luke believes that it is very important that this happened. He's very concerned with when it happened. And it's very important to him that it happened just the way that he wrote it. And why does this matter so much to us? Well, here's why. Because Christianity is the only religion in the world that says that God intersected space and time and came into history and dwelt among us in flesh and became one of us. Fully God, yet fully human, and bore our sins, and died, and was buried, and raised again on the third day, and ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand, now at the right hand of the Father. And so, before we get going today in these scriptures, it's essential that we don't buy into this lie that says it doesn't matter whether it happened, as long as you just understand that there's some sort of spiritual truth in it. Luke spends time here establishing history and factuality of the story. And you can go all the way back to these censuses from this time and see that people traveled back to their hometowns and were registered. It's important because it establishes that this is true. Factuality matters and it really happened. And this, I just want to say it from the beginning, is not a fairy tale. Now back to these verses. These verses give us the setting for this, the greatest of all stories. We know them from, um, sorry, we know from them that Caesar Augustus was ruler of all of the world. The verses say that. He was ruler over all of the world. He wanted to register all of the world to himself. And what we know from ancient historians is this. Caesar Augustus was the great nephew of Julius Caesar, and he was a born fighter. He clawed his way to to power by defeating Antony and Cleopatra. And then he gave the empire of Rome a solidness that endured for centuries. Think about that. Rome was no joke in that time. He created peace for the empire. It was a forced peace, but it endured for hundreds of years. He was the first Caesar to be called Augustus. And that's important because when the Roman Senate created that, they voted to give him that title. And here's why that's important. Augustus means holy and revered. And so up to that time, before Caesar had the title Caesar Augustus, that title, Augustus, was reserved exclusively for the gods. And at about the exact same time Luke is writing these words in Scripture, 
Some of the Greek cities in Asia Minor adopted Caesar's birthday, September 23rd, as the first day of the new year. Why would they have done that? Well, they did that because they were hailing him as Savior. They were saying that life began when Caesar began. And so you could say that the world had at its helm a self-proclaimed, widely accepted God and Savior in the Roman Empire. And so here we have this contrast being set up, and it's very stark because in this moment, the real Savior is coming. The world believes they have a God and Savior, but the real Savior is coming. And it's in this time period where Caesar Augustus was larger in life and Rome was a superpower that the nation of Israel was no longer a major power in the Near East. In fact, they would be called a blip on the map. Israel at this time has no king. In fact, Israel hadn't had a king for 500 years. And so they are totally dependent on the pagan occupying power. And that power is Rome. So consider this with me for a second. This is the world that Jesus is born into. They believe they have a God and Savior in Caesar Augustus. And Jesus is coming through Israel and they're nothing. So at this moment that Israel is at its greatest weakness, God chooses to send a Messiah into the world. And because of Rome's power, Caesar Augustus has declared a census. Why would he declare a census? Well, for two reasons. The first reason is taxes. (laughs) Leaders always love more taxes, don't they? And, And the second reason is military So Israel is exempt from military service, but they are not exempt from taxes. And Caesar Augustus made the decree for taxation because he had in view the enlargement of his own empire. He was looking to build the Roman Empire, but little did he know that his action was actually laying the foundation for the kingdom that would be far greater than the Roman Empire. And this kingdom that he was laying the foundation for would have no end. So what is Luke trying to tell us here in these first three verses? Well, he's saying this, that whatever Augustus' designs are, whatever he tends to do, or sorry, intends to do by making this decree, however oblivious he is to this obscure family in Nazareth, he is not in control of God's working out of his providence. God will work out the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies. Luke here is reminding us that the most powerful institutions and men and governments in the world are only pawns in the hands of the wisdom of God and the work of saving his people. And it's essential for you and I to remember that the timing of Christ's birth here is a reminder of God's sovereignty. God can use the Roman Empire and the reign of Herod and the rule of Quirinius and the census that is being taken to bring about the right timing and the right components for the birth of his son. God knows what is best, and it's easy to read the Christian story and just to enjoy the parts of the story or the elements of the story that we can see. But consider today the timing, the thing that we can't see, that Luke is trying to tell us something here, and what he is telling us is this. God is in control. So we see the timing of the birth of Christ in verses 1 through 3, and then I want to look at verses 4 and 5 because they tell us something else. And it says this, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. 
So what do we see in verses 4 and 5? We know from verses 1 through 3 that God's in control of the timing. From verses 4 and 5, we see that God is in control over the place of Jesus' birth. Not just the time when he will be born, but also the place where he will be born. And you might be thinking, well, that's duh, but listen to this. It's crazy. God is sovereign over the place. Look, look with me for a second at Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and it says this. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from, the, from of old, from ancient days. Okay, so this prophecy that was written some, somewhere between five and seven hundred years before Jesus was born, this prophecy says that Jesus will be born in Bethlehem, right? The Savior will be born in Bethlehem. So I want you to think about this with me for a second. Joseph is a carpenter in a town called Nazareth. We know that. Mary and Joseph live in Nazareth. Mary, at this point, has probably designed for herself a nursery for her new baby in Nazareth, right? Mary and Joseph probably have a birthing plan that has something to do with Nazareth. I don't know how things worked back then. I don't know what their insurance was like. I don't have a clue where their hospitals were. But I know that they plan to have their baby in Nazareth. Bethlehem, which Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says the Savior will be born in, is 80 miles away from Nazareth. Some of you are thinking, okay, well, hop on the interstate. I can do that in 45 minutes, <laughs> right? <laughs> Kaylee, you think you can do it in 45? Okay, we got to talk. Um, that's a fast drive, right? But we're talking 80 walking miles away from Bethlehem with this woman that he's engaged to who is full term in her pregnancy. But according to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, the Savior will come from Bethlehem. How is this going to happen? How can God make that happen? How do you get Jesus to Bethlehem to be born? Here's how it happens. A distant Roman emperor named Caesar Augustus, who doesn't even know that Mary and Joseph exist, why would he? He reaches his relentless emperor arm into all of the tiny villages across the Mediterranean, and because of Caesar's rule, and because of his plan to have the entire world registered so that they can pay taxes to him, Joseph and Mary are forced to travel from jo to Joseph's hometown, which is Bethlehem, so that they can register as citizens. So suddenly, this carpenter from Nazareth and his little family have to make their way to Bethlehem. And this is how God gets them to Bethlehem. And because of that, Micah chapter 5 verse 2 is fulfilled. This poor couple ends up on a forced journey to Bethlehem to pay taxes. And this sets the stage for the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecy. Mary and Joseph appear to be helpless pawns caught up in the movement of secular history. But every move that happens is under the hand of Almighty God. There's an invisible power over and behind these human rulers. Caesar and Quirinius do not know it, but God uses them to fulfill what he has promised long ago. God uses the emperor's senses to fulfill his plan. 
I want you to know this as we study this, that God's people never need to fear the laws of men. Over those laws are the laws of God. That even when men rule for their own ends, God is at work to fulfill his plan, and his plan is redemption. Now, before we move on, I also want to point something else out, and and maybe it's not what you want to hear, but just because God is sovereign over time and God is in control over the place of Jesus' birth, you can see from this account that that does not mean that Joseph and Mary will not face hardships and struggles and trials. Think about this for a second. This teenage bride and her teenage carpenter fiancé are forced to travel to his hometown. There's no SUV to jump into to go 80 miles. Mary's full term, which would have forced a slow rolling gait as she walked those 80 miles. And some of you are like, I thought she was on a donkey. Well, she could have been, but I, I don't know where we picked that up from other than plays that we watch. Maybe, maybe she was fortunate enough to have borrowed a mule to carry her. But whatever their situation was, she traveled in the dust and the cold of winter, bearing the distressing knowledge that she might have to have her baby far away from home. She may have to have her baby far away from her mom. And she's a teenager. She may have to have her baby far away from anyone, nearly anyone who cared for her. And so the point is this, that God's control and his sovereignty and his providence do not always mean that hardships and struggles and trials will not happen. What we should see here in this story is this, that while life can be difficult and painful sometimes, the follower of God does not need to worry at hard circumstances. And I don't mean that they don't mean anything to you. But what I mean is that hard circumstances are not always an indication that you're not doing what God is calling you to do. Here's why. All of the circumstances of our lives are in God's hands, just like the timing of Christ's birth was in his hands, just like the place of Christ's birth was in his hands. Our times are in his hands, and we can trust him. So, so far what we've seen is the timing of Christ's birth and the place of Christ's birth, and both of these things point us to the providence and the sovereignty of God. And I want to look at one more thing from this section of Scripture this morning, and it's found in verses 6 and 7, and it's, it's this. We can see the humility of Christ's birth. Look at verses 6 and 7 again with me. And, the, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. This is just a, a observation, but I, I think that Luke's retelling of the birth story is such a man's way of retelling the birth story. <laughs> Did you guys read that? It, it just says, and it came time for her to give birth, and she gave birth. What? And Luke, come on, man. She traveled 80 miles. Can we talk about how she might have felt? Nah, she gave birth. It's good enough. So just really quick... I want to think about this for a minute. Outside of what Luke wrote in Luke chapter 2, I want to remind you of stuff that we've already talked about. The journey from Nazareth had to have made Mary increasingly weary. Even if she was riding on a mule, honestly, even if they had an SUV, she still would have been tired. Full term, drove, walked, rode 80 miles. That's a trip, right? She and Joseph arrive in Bethlehem, and they are exhausted. 
especially Mary. And then any woman who has ever given birth can relate to this. The pains of childbirth begin. And I imagine at first Mary wasn't sure if it was time for her to give birth because she's a child herself. This is her first child. But then when when there was no doubt that it was real, she tells Joseph, I'm about to have a baby and probably through tears. In Bethlehem, we know from history that the accommodations for any traveler would have been primitive. Any traveler. The Eastern Inn was the roughest of arrangements. We're not talking Holiday Inn Express last night. Nobody gets to say that. We're not talking even a a garbage of a hotel. We're talking primitive. Normally, what you would find was a series of stalls built on the inside of an enclosure, and then the opening of these stalls went into a common courtyard where the animals were kept. And all that the innkeeper would have provided for, for people that were staying was hay and then a fire to cook on. And you know the story. On the day that Joseph and Mary arrived, nothing was available for them. Not even a crude stall. And think about this, you guys. Despite the urgent situation, so people had to have seen a child, 13, 14 years old, about to have a baby. She's in labor. Despite the urgent situation, nobody made room for them. So it was likely in this common courtyard where the traveler's animals were tethered that Mary gave birth to Jesus with only Joseph attending her. And try to put yourself there. Joseph himself probably wept as much as Mary did. He saw her pain. He could do nothing for her. He was poor. They were humiliated. People around them were indifferent. And there had to be this sense in this moment of utter hopelessness. Joseph felt shame for not being able to provide for Mary on this night especially. And if I was Joseph, I would have been torn up. It would have made me weep. And if we imagine this setting like we do so often with our nativity scenes as a freshly swept state fair kind of situation, then we miss the whole point. This was a miserable thing. It was shockingly scandalous, and there was sweat and pain and blood and cries. And Kent Hughes, an author that I read, writes this. No child born into the world that day seemed to have lower prospects. The Son of God was born into the world not as a prince, but as a pauper. And I want us to learn something here about the character of God this morning. We've been talking about God's sovereign providence, but now I want to look at the character of God, and here is why. The birth of Christ is not simply this temporary piece of the story that we only talk about once a year. It's not simply this temporary piece of the story for the sake of redemption. Yeah, it had to happen that way so that Christ could die for us. This is actually a window right here into the heart of God. Look with me for a second at John chapter 14, verse 8. Philip um, is talking to Jesus, and he's asking him, uh, he says this, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus, show us what God looks like. Show us who God is. And Jesus responds to Philip in John chapter 14, verse 9. He said this, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? 
Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. In other words, Jesus was saying, if you want to know what my Father is like, look at me. If you want to know how my Father loves, look at me. If you want to know how my Father responds, look at me. I and the Father are one. And so I want to apply that to the birth of Jesus this morning, because I think we should. I believe that the Christmas story, the story of Jesus' birth, the humility of Christ and the incarnation, the condescension of Jesus is not just a window into what God is willing to do to save you. The humility of Christ's birth is a window into the character of God. It shows us who God is. Christ's birth reminds us of God's humility. We are reminded of God's humility in the humility of Jesus' birth. God humbles himself in the humbling of his son for our sake. And so when he calls you and I to humility, he is not calling you to something which he is not prepared to do himself. And when people say God is distant and God just wants a pound of flesh and God is mean, what? Sorry, I'm losing it. He's humble and he cares. This is a window into the heart of God. And in fact, he's not calling you to something that is inconsistent with the glory of his own character when he asks us to be humble. God's glory is revealed in his humility, and we ought to be moved by that. The humility of Christ's birth, the incarnation, provides for us a marvelous model for Christ's work in our lives. And we, we tend to look at Christ's birth around Christmas time, but hopefully you can be brought throughout the year to wonder of the humility of Christ's birth and what that says about God the Father's character. He isn't distant. Look at the swaddled Jesus lying in a feeding trough in the stable, the birthplace of common livestock. Look long and hard with all of your mind and all of your heart at that. It is the most wondrous act of humility. God clearly leapt down. Nothing could be lower for him. The omnipotent, omnipotent omniscient, omnipresent God became a baby. So where do we go with this today? What what do we do with this? We've kind of worked through the seven verses of the text. How should this affect how we walk out of here this morning? I'd really like to just share with you two things. Um, I think there are probably hundreds more that the Holy Spirit maybe even prompted you in, but I'm going to leave you with two things. And the first one is this. Our times are in God's hands. Our times are in God's hands. I'm drawn back to the beginning of this message. I'm drawn back to the beginning of these verses, verses 1 through 3. Our times are in God's hands. Just as God could use a Roman empire to bring about the right components for the birth of his son, just as God could make that birth happen in a particular moment in history in which he ordained it, so also our times are in his hands, and we need to learn to trust him. I think that this is a really important message and maybe even a very timely message for someone in here this morning because some of you maybe have been praying for relief for a long time. 
Maybe some of you have been praying for answers for a long time, and potentially there are some in here that have felt like your prayers are not being heard and that you're beginning to question the timing of the King of Kings. Um, I've been watching this show uh, called Seal Team. I don't know if anyone's ever seen it. I think that I can recommend it. I don't know. Maybe I'll get an email about that. But um, I love the show because... On each episode, Bravo team um, is sent in on a mission, and they just crush the enemy. I mean, they just destroy the enemy every single episode. It's it's awesome. And And I was thinking this week, we love it when the Calvary rides in, right? Over the mountain and just destroys the enemy at the last moment when all of us want it to happen. And we love those types of stories. And I was sort of asking myself the question this week, I wonder why we like those kinds of stories. Is it because of the movies? Is it because of TV shows? And I think the answer is no. I think that is written on our hearts. I think we love when the cavalry rides in and fixes the situation at the last moment, at the most impossible time, because that's written on our hearts. We love SEAL Team type of stories because that is the very thing that God does in his plan of redemption. I mean, at the very right moment, the Bible says, while we are still sinners, God sends his son into the world to die for the ungodly. And it is just at the right moment. And sometimes we have a hard time seeing it because we don't understand God's plans, but God does it just at the right moment. J.C. Ryle, a commentator, says this, Let us ever rest our souls on the thought that, time are, that times are in God's hands. He knows the best season for sending help to his church and new life into the world. Let us beware of giving way to over-anxiety about the course of events around us as if we knew better than the King of Kings what time relief should come. Let me say this to you this morning with the Christmas message in view. If you are waiting for the King of Kings, you can wait in faith because our times are in God's hands and he's good. Look at Psalm 31 verses 14 and 15 with me for a second. David writes this, and David needed... What only God could do, he needed the Calvary. He says this, But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. And here's where this this line comes from. It's straight from scriptures. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. David says, my times are in your hand. God, I trust you and your timing. You are sovereign over all of it. And let me ask you this question this morning. Is that the description of your faith this morning? Do you believe that your times are in God's hands and that he is in control over all of those times? The story of Christ's birth should give you ample evidence of God's sovereignty over timing. And then the final thought that I would like for us to consider and I will leave you with this morning actually comes from It might be the 80s. I don't remember when I heard it as a child, but there's this singer-songwriter named Babby Mason. Um, And maybe some of you younger people are going to make fun of me after this. That's fine. It hurts, but it's fine. Um, But Babby Mason uh, sang it this way, when you can't trace God's hands, trust his heart. 
When you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. Let me look, let's look real quick again at Luke chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, and the worship team can come on up. It says this, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. So if you were reading this story for the first time, which might be hard for you to do because we've talked through the Christmas story for years and years, I'm sure most of you have heard this, but I can almost guarantee if you're reading this story and you know that God is sending his son into the world, you would expect things to go differently. This is the king of kings, and then in the same verse it says he's wrapped in a sheep's towels. The king of kings is born to rule and he is placed in a manger. And I think if the timing of God's plan doesn't surprise you, then the methods of God probably will. God's power is being displayed here in weakness. Think about these details for a minute. We read about this four weeks ago. Gabriel comes to Mary and he says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. What would you take away from a statement like that if the angel Gabriel said to you, Greetings, O favored one, I would take away... God has favored me. God is with me. I'm okay. God himself has drawn near to me. But then the next thing we see in Mary's life as she's walking to Bethlehem, she's traveled to Bethlehem, is this. She's turned away for a room. So God is with Mary, but she can't find a place to lay her head. God is with Mary and Joseph, but there is not a clean place for her to give birth to the Messiah. And then think back about what Gabriel said about Jesus. He said he's going to be great and he'll be called the son of the highest, Emmanuel, God with us. And then in the very end of what we studied today, Mary wraps him in cloth and lays him in a manger. He's great. The world is going to call him Emmanuel. And then they laid him in a trough. How does that make sense? And all I can say is this, when you can't trace God's hand, you have to trust his heart. This account of the birth of Christ shows us the low estate, even the deprivation of Jesus when he comes into the world. But through Jesus' humiliation, he purchased for us the title to glory. And we get to learn from and rejoice in and worship the mystery of redemption that comes through weakness. I was thinking about this this week, if I was appointed to be savior of the world, and praise God I wasn't, but if I was appointed to be savior of the world, or you were appointed to be savior of the world, what would your plan be? If I knew the cosmic rebellion of Satan, and Adam and Eve, and the countless other sins of humanity in the history of the world, here's what I would do. I would send in Bravo team from my show SEAL team. I would send in the giants that I could find. I would create some. I would do air raids. I would put Jesus in a tank, and we would accomplish the redemption of the world over the Roman Empire. But God, in his infinite wisdom sent a baby to be born in a stockyard laid in a feeding trough to two poor obscure teenagers could it get any lower and i said this before but i'm going to say it here again that christ's birth is a window into the heart of god he is humble he is loving he is caring he is powerful and his power is in his weakness and when you can't see what god is doing and we can't always trace his hand We can trust his heart.
We may not always know what God is doing, but we can know that in his humble plan, which you and I have never, ever even thought of and never would have, the heart of God the Father was to redeem the world. And I don't know about you, but I can trust that heart. I can trust the heart of God when the timing doesn't make sense. I can trust the heart of God even when I can't trace his hand. And this is why he is so good. Praise God for the Christmas story. Praise God for this message that comes from Luke chapter 2. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word again. And God, I'm personally sorry that um, sometimes I think, man, I would do it differently. I, I would have come in more power. And we know from your word that you will come in power, but Lord, that you came humbly because in your heart, it's all about redeeming humankind. And Lord, today I pray that we would find ourselves trusting you with your timing, that we would find ourselves trusting you even when we can't trace your hand because we can trust your heart. We love you, Lord. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.